Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban, and I hope you like uh, our new uh, electro funk uh, intro music. Uh, thanks to Emil uh, from my team who uh, put it together. Uh, while uh, we are warming up the channel, letting everybody join, uh, me and my guests are dancing in the background. Uh, this uh, music is uh, hopefully uh, as uh, nice as, uh, as, as it uh, appears uh, to me. And of course, uh, just a few words before we start. Uh, please subscribe to the channel on YouTube, uh, but also you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter because we are streaming simultaneously uh, to uh, every possible channel. Join uh, our Discord community uh, that uh, is uh, there for us to uh, have a conversation around the themes that uh, these episodes uh, cover. And uh, of course, uh, if you find uh, uh, this content as well as uh, every other channel that I uh, create and curate valuable, feel free to uh, subscribe and support us on uh, Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. So uh, today we are going to talk about uh, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs uh, in a very, very an orthodox approach. Uh, because uh, both uh, uh, 1517 Fund and uh, my friend Danielle, uh, who's a general partner there, have uh, fairly uh, contrarian ways of thinking about uh, uh, why and how uh, people should be so, uh, supported uh, in the startup ecosystem, uh, contrarian to a lot of uh, assumed wisdom. And, uh, of course, uh, it will be wonderful to uh, have a conversation with her about this, as well as uh, the projects that she's excited about. Uh, and so let's uh, start by uh, welcoming uh, Danielle. There you go. Uh, you. Wonderful to see you. Yeah, wonderful to be here, David. And I have to say, your intro music made me want to start doing a Charleston. I used to be a swing dancer and a Lindy Hopper. And I was like, this is great. I was like, I'm ready. <laughs> So I am super so happy to hear that. Yes, yes. Um, I, I remember seeing the movie uh, The Great Gatsby, mm. and, and that was uh, the entire soundtrack was uh, electro funk, and yeah. uh, that is uh, uh, electro swing. Maybe yeah. that is where uh, I I learned uh, to to like this style uh, first. Uh, so uh, what I what I like to do <clears throat> when we are uh, together with guests uh, all over the world is uh, uh, to also uh, show them and, and show our viewers uh, where we are uh, in mm -hmm. the world, right? So I am speaking to you from uh, Bergamo, Italy, and uh, uh, you are, uh, if I am not mistaken, in uh, San Francisco. And I'm right outside San Francisco in Oakland, technically, but I'm right across oh, the bridge. Okay. So uh, I already programmed Google Earth uh, to go, go for San Francisco. Fly to San Francisco, and then we will show yeah. Oakland is not too far across the bay. Yep, here we here we are. That is San Francisco, beautiful California, and if yep. you zoom and out uh, a, a little bit, uh, there yep. will be, there there is Oakland. I can see my house. 
<laughs> oh, okay. Well, if you look out from the window, you will probably you will see my finger pointing right. at you right now. <laughs> so how are you coveting? How are you uh, coping with the lockdown and everything? Yeah, uh, it's been an interesting time. I think um, in the U.S., the Bay Area was one of the first, if not the first, uh, to go into a sheltering in place mode. And we are still in it. Um, you know, it's uh, each county in California is, is sort of figuring out what's going to be best for them. But um, overall, I, I personally am doing well through it. Um, I've been very lucky in that my uh, my family, for those who uh, a couple of them uh, potentially had or did have uh, COVID, got through it, through it fine. Um, working from home is something that I'm very accustomed to, that we're very accustomed to with 1517. Investing online and through Zoom is very normal for us. Um, we've actually been able to do a lot of outreach to our community and do, we do we're doing something called 1517 at home now, where on Friday nights we're having a talk. Uh, about any any matter of different subjects, and that's been great. We've been able to reach, you know, somewhere between 100, 150 and 200 people per uh, Friday night. One of those, so that's great because when we're doing in-person events, you know, it's it's geographically locked, and so this has been really nice for us to outreach to more of our community. But um, but yeah, no, we are we are doing well through this. Uh, we're a venture capital fund, and so our companies are going through the ups and downs of what it means to pivot right now through COVID. Um, some of our companies are doing very, very well. Actually, one of our companies, Loom, they're an asynchronous video tool. So it takes a, a video of your face and your screen at the same time. I actually use it a lot for pitch uh, deck feedback, but designers and engineers use it. Um, now, since COVID, teachers are using it. There's a teacher in Berkeley who's teaching a class of 2,500 students. And Loom really considers themselves a public service at this point. Uh, they just announced their latest round with Sequoia and Co2. Uh, so we're really excited for their progress and, and where they're going to go in the future. And we have another company actually called Hamama that you might want to pull up. Um, they're kind of like the victory garden of the kitchen. They are helping people to grow their own food just indoors. So you don't need a plot of land. You don't need a lot of light. Um, I've been a user for two years and an investor in the company for a little over a year. Uh, they are really, really fantastic with what they do. I actually wish I have I have my hamamas downstairs. I could uh, I could run down and grab one, but I think that's we're probably out of time for that. But um, but yeah, they're a really fun company too, and they're doing great uh, helping people and supporting what they're doing right now. Yeah, that's hamama right there. And you'll see if you oh, scroll. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love it. So, you'll so in-house in -house gardens to grow microgreens. And yeah, no dirt. It's so easy. You just add water. They've innovated on that thing that they just put in the tray. That's called a seed quilt. Uh, that's their novel piece of technology. And you put water in it, and that's it. And in 10 days, you have fresh greens. I have some new wasabi greens coming up right now. I've never had those ones before, so I'm excited about it. Uh, if anyone's interested in this, you can use code 1517VIP to get a 15% discount. But uh, we love this company. I love working with the founders. And they're really, you know, they're an essential service right now. So it's been great to see our companies be able to step up to the plate and be able to help during a time when just so much is needed. Let me let me put the the code uh, uh, on the screen. So there you go. Yeah, it might have to be. You can get Hamama. Yeah. Sorry. It might have to be Capital VIP. I'm not entirely sure if it's case sensitive. Um, but yeah, if people want to check it out. 
Yeah, they they I ha I have four of them, <laughs> so I, I'm big into growing. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you know if they uh, ship uh, all over the U.S. or all over the world? Right now, the U.S. We're hoping for global expansion soon. All right. I do know they have customers who buy them from them and then ship them globally. The shipping is the hard part with uh, with this type of product. Uh, they're even thinking about in the future, where do they set up other warehouses and so that shipping is easier and more affordable. It's always okay. interesting to, to learn about what um, what the struggles of different companies are because what you assume the, the struggle might be, it might be something totally different. And Hamama for us is, uh, I think it's our very first direct-to-consumer company. We don't do a lot in consumer typically, so we're learning a lot alongside the team about what it takes to put out product, what it takes to ship, um, customer engagement in this type of world. Uh, very interesting stuff. So uh, you are uh, a, an important uh, representative of... Uh, a minority, at least today, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, a female uh, VC, mm -hmm. a female investor. Yep. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about your journey of uh, yep. how did you get uh, where you are and uh, whether it can be an inspiration for other uh, uh, other people to, to, to follow, other girls, other women to follow your path? Yeah, absolutely. So... So like many people's paths, it's twisty and turny and in some places doesn't make any sense. I always tell people if um, if someone had said to me 10 years ago, are you going to be in venture capital or, or in VC? First of all, I would have said, what's VC? I didn't even know the acronym. Um, and so I didn't foresee myself in finance. I didn't see myself working in startups even as far back as, as 10 years ago in particular. But um, I have worked a lot in terms of working with human potential for a long time. Uh, at one point in my very early career, I was a psychometrician, uh, which means that I was doing intelligence testing and um, sort of character testing and behavioral testing actually with individuals. At a later point, I was a private tutor working with students. Um, at a later point after that, I started a charter school where we served young people who um, had kind of a different philosophy. One of the philosophical underpinnings that I have is that choice is very important for human beings and that extends down into children. Um, and so our charter school is based on homeschooling principles and child love learning and directedness. Um, from there, I made this interesting leap where I had moved, I grew up in Boston. I moved to San Diego. That's where I ended up starting my charter school. And then I moved up to the Bay Area and I didn't really know what I was going to do in the Bay. I was doing a staycation. Um, I didn't know if my skill sets of being an operator would be valuable. Um, you know, starting a charter school is, there are a lot of things that are analogous to starting a startup. You need to find funding. You need to build a team. Uh, it's a lot of the same type of journey, but I just wasn't sure if it would really be valued up here. I thought, oh, I'm not a coder. I don't have a tech background. Um, you know, how am I gonna, how am I gonna fit in here essentially? And I got a phone call one day from someone who worked at the Teal Foundation. And I had seen that the Teal Fellowship had launched 10 years ago. And so Peter Teal is the founder of the Teal Fellowship uh, and uh, the main donor of the Teal Foundation. And he started a program to give young people $100,000 to work on a project or startup or nonprofit of their choosing outside of school. 
So the idea was instead of having a young person spend $100,000 on their education, what would happen if you gave them $100,000 to work on something over a two-year period? You know, would they be able to accelerate their career and their life path? Um, and 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 that is where we originally met because I I yeah. was uh, or and and maybe I'm still am a, a mentor yeah. at the TL. Yeah. It is funny because yeah. I I don't have uh, a lot of uh, contact with uh, with the fellowship team, but uh, all the candidates and yeah. some of the the, the or the, the applicants and and some of the fellows uh, are in are in touch directly and since they oh, yeah. they are. Uh, uh, by definition, very self-directed uh, people, uh, yeah. they just uh, seek so, out potential mentors, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, it is it is funny that uh, that I I receive uh, these questions of how oh, yeah. to apply, what they can get out of it, and yeah. I, I I have kept in touch with the, with a large number uh, of, uh, of 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 the fellows. Uh, uh, actually, um, we had uh, on the show. Let me pull it up. Uh, just, uh, just, uh, just recently, uh, one uh, from the the first uh, cohort. Uh, guess oh. who? From the first cohort. Oh, did you have Laura Deming on? Well, let me show Not you. Not Laura. Like who'd you have? Dale. Yeah. Dale oh, yeah. Dale Stevens. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah, with Uncollege and all he's done uh, in the education world, and now he's working as a coach. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we said, one of the things that we always said about the Teal Fellowship was that it was a two-year program, but a ten-year timeline. Mm -hmm. um, so it's one of these things where people would often compare the program to college at the beginning and say, oh, well, what are the, you know, what do these people have to show for what they're doing? And, you know, for some of them, it was the very early days of what they were starting with a business or a nonprofit or a project or research. Um, but now that we're out 10 years later, uh, it'll be 10 years in September, we've really been able to see a lot of the impact that they've had from taking this sort of creative path and doing something different for themselves. Um, you know, so some of our fellows are like Laura Deming, who has started two venture capital funds that work in longevity. Um, Dale Stevens has done tremendous work in ed tech. Uh, we have Vitalik Buterin, who launched Ethereum during the Teal Fellowship. Uh, Dylan Field, who started Figma. Uh, they were just backed by Andreessen that started during, uh, that was launched during the fellowship. And uh, and then we have Ritesh with Oyo Rooms, which is the second largest hotel chain in the world right now. And so, you know, during those first two years, as most investors know, the first two years of a company are, you know, kind of like the seed of an idea to just barely having a, a team assembled. You know, maybe you have 10 or 15 people in the first couple of years. Um, but I've been really blessed and astounded to get to work with some amazing people and be part of that journey. Um, and, and it was really working with the fellowship. And, the, and one of the, my life lessons working with the fellowship was that I had seen the program launch on media, on social and just in the news. But I assumed because it was out in the news that it was fully fleshed out and they had a whole staff. And so I thought, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I knew people over there, but I wasn't going to reach out because you know, they must have everything they need. Um, but that wasn't the case. And so someone came to me uh, at the beginning of the program and said, hey, you know, your background working uh, in alternative education, 
philosophically and you're in line with what we're doing, um, you know, we'd love for you to come over here and run the program. And so I said, oh, wow, why not? So I, I did that staycation in the Bay Area. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I ended up uh, working for Peter and the Teal Foundation for five years. And it was from seeing the extraordinary results of the young people we were working with. And also that there was a, a gap in access to capital for young people when we would try to introduce uh, fellows to people and venture. It was really hard to find a right fit. And so in year five, which was in 2015, myself and my colleague, Michael Gibson, we went to Peter and we were proposing just leaving the foundation to start a venture venture capital fund. We were kind of calling it a uh, fellowship 2.0. So instead of working with just the individuals, we would work with their companies. So Peter loved the idea. Uh, not only did he give us his blessing to leave the foundation, but he also committed as an anchor LP to our fund to help us get started. Uh, we had 30 LPs in our first fund, and I call them our true believers because, you know, we didn't have a track record at that time. Um, we were learning. So calls them true fans, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They are our true, true fans. It is so true. Um, and so we've gotten to work with some really amazing people. Um, you know, we've worked on 15, 17 year, 15, 17 now for five years. And it has been an extraordinary journey. I mean, we went from really understanding how to discover talent and work with um, people who are outside the norm to being able to evaluate companies, to being able to help them to get more funding, to make hires, all the ups and downs of startup life. Uh, and uh, and so, so now we work with a, a large portfolio of about 50 companies. Uh, and, you know, that'll be growing more and more over the years. And and you list uh, also uh, grants. So yeah. that, at, at the beginning, uh, since uh, we are talking about uh, uh, at, at least at the beginning, uh, the deal flow was was mostly the the fellowship oh, recipients, yeah. right? So yeah. so we are talking about uh, very young people yeah. who could be as young as eighteen, nineteen, or yeah. twenty or twenty two. Yeah, uh, but but. By definition, none older than 25. Ah, so it's not about age for us. It's about narrative. And so the narrative for us is that um, the majority of our founders, I'd say 85 to 90% of our founders don't have an undergrad degree. So some of our founders are in their 30s. I call them my OG dropouts. They were doing it before it was cool. But yes, the majority of our founders do tend to be somewhere around 20 to 25 years old. Um, this might be the first sort of like real startup they've done. Maybe they've built apps before. Maybe they've, you know, had other sort of projects they've done. But yeah, this is a, a big first moment for them. So the, so the concept of the grant really is, mm -hmm. listen, we both know you don't know what you are doing. Why don't yep. you try? Yeah. And, and, and rather than complicating our lives, you <laughs> just dedicate yourself yep. to it. And, and then you come back and then we can start talking. Yeah, so there's it's it's sort of that. It's it's also one of the things that we just saw was that um, a small amount of money could really help someone to go much further than we thought. With the fellowship, we had assumed that someone would need a large amount of money to be able to kick something off. And during the fellowship, we actually piloted giving 1K grants to people. That's um, amazing. That's one, question. What is the smallest grant that you, yeah. you gave? In in my mind, you know, really, and 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 we aren't you you and I obviously are not alone in this. Even giving somebody the money to buy themselves a smartphone, yep, oh, huge, uh, can can yeah. change incredibly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so what what we've seen is that 
um, when, especially, you know, now we're doing it virtually, um, but, you know, typically if we're at office hours on a campus or we're at a hackathon, you know, a young person would walk up to us and say, hey, I want to learn more about 1517. We tell them about us and I say, you know, what are you working on? You know, what's what's interesting in your dorm room? And they'd say, oh, you know, I'm trying to hack together this or that or the other thing. And you could tell they were like really passionate about it or, you know, that they had some of the skill they would need to move forward. And oftentimes I would ask them, I call it a fairy godmother moment. I'd say, um, you know, what would you do with a thousand dollars? And they'd tell me, oh, you know, I'd buy uh, an Arduino, I'd buy this type of equipment, um, you know, I'd use it for AWS credits, and then I'd tell them I can give them those, and then what else do they want to spend the money on? Um, and many times we've said to students when they've come up, okay, great, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks. Like you have sort of an inkling of what you would do they often have characteristics that we're looking for in founders and in people who were what we like what we were evaluating in the teal fellowship like insatiable curiosity passion drive interest and for us a thousand dollars is a really easy way to start working with someone and sort of we call it a nudge grant um, because it nudges them into the frame of mind of you know what maybe i should start working on this now um, so we've had a lot of young people who've come to us and said, wow, you all believed in me first. And that belief made me believe in myself to do this. That's right. They feel the pressure to, to step up to the plate yep, yep. And, and start, start delivering, start, as you say, believing in themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, because everybody else is telling them they should just focus on their studies and why would you do something else? And, and what's interesting is we'll forever think of our grants as a goodwill and rapport builder with the maker community. Um, but what's been interesting is that 20% of our fund one company started as grantees with us. Um, so we didn't expect it to be like, like, you know, in venture, you'd call this a deal flow generator. We yeah. never thought of it like that. We'll never think of it like that. But what's been interesting is how fast people have come back around. In fact, um, we even had a, a young French entrepreneur who came back to us. She had taken the grant, leveraged it so hard that she was raising more money than we could even come in for. Like it was, she was so far off to the races. It was outside our scope at that point. And I was like, I'm glad the grant helped. Like have fun storming the castle, building your company. Like we'll introduce you to other investors who can do a, a larger check than we can. Um, so we've seen some really, really amazing outcomes of just that small, small check. And, and, and what about geographical distribution? Another uh, dogma of traditional VC in the Bay Area used to be, I'm in uh, um, Sand Hill Road. Yeah. I want to hop in my Mercedes and uh, reach you in not more than 20 minutes. If you are yeah. farther out. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, you know, I have a funny story. One of our founders is in New York and uh, his office is in Brooklyn and they're a, they're a hard tech company. And so like they, they are, have right? there. Um, I can't, I'm not going to list who they are because I'm going to say something about their board. Um, but the funny part was is that they had their first board meeting and the board said, oh, hey, we don't want to go to Brooklyn. Will you come over here to Manhattan instead? And we were the first investors to ever go visit their actual office. And, which, and they raised a lot of money. And I was like, how do people make these investments and don't even go visit or won't be willing to cross a bridge for a board meeting? So well, hardcore, hardcore New Yorkers uh, pretend they have to pick up their passport to go to the outside boroughs. That's it's so true. It's so true. No, we, you know, so one of the things, this is sort of goes back to some of my old history, but 
when I was a private tutor, I would learn so much going to somebody's home. When the door opened and I could see like, okay, this house is chaotic or this house is really clean or this is the environment the student is in, um, that was really helpful for me in teaching them. And I feel the same way about startups. When I go to their environment, I get to see where they are. I get to see growth over time. Like one of our startups, Loom, that we talked about earlier, um, on the third pitch they did to us, we met them at their apartment in San Mateo. And it was like this kind of dark San Mateo apartment, not very much light coming in. And now they have this beautiful office in San Francisco. And of course they're working remote a lot right now. So I love to see the change over time of like, hey, here's where it started. And so we visit companies a lot. We do lots of Zoom meetings. We don't expect people to just come to us or be in the Bay. We invest all over North America. And our grants we've sometimes done internationally. Although one of the things we think about with our grants is that there needs to be a path forward. What we don't want the grant to be is a dead in the water moment where someone gets somewhere, but then they can't take it further because there's not an ecosystem to uh, support them. Okay, so so what about the, the next step? Because yep. the concept of uh, the centralized and distributed teams yep. uh, is now becoming something that uh, well, is not only in the exotic world of uh, open source software development yeah. uh, and, and hyper geeks, but yeah. it is becoming um, quite accepted. And yeah. that means that the legal vehicle that you need yeah. in order yeah. to be able to invest yeah. Yeah. established as a Delaware C Corp, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is the, the, the best, yeah. is not necessarily tied uh, to the, the people living anywhere uh, specifically. Yep. No, I've seen that. A lot. I've seen people who are starting companies that are more international and internationally based who have a Delaware C Corp. Um, yeah. um, because this is the framework that um, is legally most appetizing. And so that, that does help out a lot. Um, for us, though, one of the things we think about in terms of investing in general is do we have a really good handle on the economics of the place, of the problem itself, and so on? And so for us as a team of four people, it gets a little bit shaky of, I'm not going to pretend to understand what happens in Malaysia. Like, I don't have that expertise or understanding. At some point, we would love to expand and be more global, although that's where our investors come in. We have investors who are from Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Guatemala, Germany, um, Estonia, all over. And it's been it's been so lovely to work with them. And so we actually will sometimes, you know, a young person will write into our contact form. And actually this happened the other day, someone wrote in and they're in um, Guatemala. And we said to our investor in Guatemala, hey, Fernando, you know, would you want to talk to this person? And he said, yes, and they're going to go chat. So, so we love making this. So just, just to make sure that our, the, the, the people listening uh, uh, understand because uh, the, the structure of uh, venture capital investing is not uh, super obvious uh, yeah. to everybody. Uh, one important uh, difference between angel investing and venture capital investing is that a professional investor in a venture capital firm has investors of their own. So right. you are deploying money that has been entrusted to you yep. so that you can multiply it. Basically, exactly right. you are a startup selling yep. a product your yep. product is the money yep. and and uh, and uh, you are you are uh, receiving payment for your product in equity yep. right 
yeah, yeah, exactly. And, so, and yeah. so uh, you are talking about the people who gave money to your fund, yeah. uh, right. and and those are those are who are, as you said, in in many parts of the world. And traditionally, once again, because we are deconstructing a little bit the VC uh, structure yeah. uh, as it is, and and contrasting it is to with with fifteen seventeen. Uh, traditionally, uh, investors in VC funds uh, used to be pension funds right. and and um, uh, university endowments and and trusts and and family offices or multifamily offices, etc. Yeah. And 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 that is where, as you as you said uh, at the beginning, you didn't necessarily fit because you are not a Harvard MBA. Uh, I don't want to be. And, and you don't want to be, right? <laughs> yeah, what it actually comes down to is fund size. So there's a category of fund now called like the micro fund or the nano fund. And that tends to be like a micro fund tends to be under $100 million. And so when you're talking about endowments um, and hedge funds and things like that, they, on, like the smallest check they want to write is $10 million, if not $50 million. But for example, our first fund was only $20 million. And so we went out to family offices and individuals and we got 500K checks and million dollar checks. And so, yeah, we we brought that whole group together and then we're beholden to invest their money. Um, and uh, and that, yeah, that's how that works. Um, as you become successful mm -hmm. uh, and, and the measure of success for a venture capital fund is the... Um, um, uh, ROI, the, the return on 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 uh, your funds uh, itself, um, uh, the internal rate of return, the IRR, more specifically, uh, and um, basically your investors compare yep. whether taking it into account all the risk, they would have had a better option just keeping their money in in bonds or or whatever unexciting yep. stuff. Uh, and 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 hopefully it will turn out that uh, that uh, the bet paid off. Uh, you have been able to generate an IRR that uh, that beats uh, the, the the bond market, and and then you go and and say, okay, let's do it again. And they will say, yeah, we had fun, let's do it again. And then typically the the second vehicle is larger and then larger and then larger. Have you started thinking about how not to forget your roots oh, and yeah. how not to yeah. how not to end up because one one of the the the, the syndromes of this growth oriented mindset is yeah. to to then say listen I'd love to um, be part of your round unfortunately yeah. we cannot cut a check that is less than a million dollars and you yeah. only need half a million yeah yeah so we, we cannot play. Yep. So, so what are you planning to do in order to preserve uh, uh, your your legacy as you build your trajectory? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really good question because we've seen a lot of funds um, that started as seed funds or you know early stage funds, and now they do Series A plus uh, or Series B plus, or or they look more like a hedge fund at this point. And so, for us, first on that IRR number, we got our audit back uh, a few weeks ago. So I can very proudly report that our IRR is at twenty percent, and that that number, for those who don't know, puts us in the top quartile of funds. So that means our first fund is performing very, very well. Congratulations! Fantastic. It's one of these things where it's um it's really nice to have that number because for 
you know, you know, as a fund manager, how your portfolio is doing, but to report, to be able to report it in a succinct way is very hard because I talk to my founders all the time and I can tell my investors they're doing really great, but it takes a certain amount of time for markups to come, no matter how great the company is doing internally. We know that. And we're very conservative with our markups where we only mark them up when the next price round occurs. And so we're, we're very happy to be a top quartile fund now. Um, we do think a lot about fund compos composition because we don't want to outgrow our current rank. We want to always be a pre-seed fund. And so that means, so there, there's always this pressure to raise more money because it means you can hire more people. It means you can do, do more with your fund. But that said, we are really... Um, like dedicated and our whole mission is around being that first check in, um, you know, to a student or a young person's company. We don't want to become a series A fund that um, that anyone can just go to for funding. We really want to be that first supporter in the door. And so I think for our funds, you know, we have our second fund open right now. Uh, and I don't in the future, like when we have fund three, I think it would be really rare that we would ever be over something like an 80 million dollar fund. Um, you know, we have some of our founders who eventually would love to like come work for us in the future and things like that. And so like, and we've grown the team already. We have Nick and Zach who are principals who are grooming into uh, partner roles as well. And so we do want to grow the firm like across, but we want to stay in our sweet spot. Like what we know is how to write that first check. We know how to get someone from that sort of idea and pilots into product market fit um, and, and grow with them at that stage. What is uh, because what we what we are doing is we are looking at various parameters, check size, geography, stage of company, and 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 another um, important parameter uh, that that startup founders uh, uh, need to to understand is the decision process and the timeline and and the duration of the decision process. So yeah. so. Um, how do you characterize that in, in, in the way that uh, your fund makes yeah. uh, investment decisions? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you might have it already pulled up, but we have a whole post on this. It's called the Anti-Pitch Playbook. And it's something that we put out. It's a 30-minute read um, that I'd urge anyone to read before they pitch us. Um, but there's a, a few things that we look for in a pitch. Um, one is actually relationship over time. And so that's where our grants come in. Um, that's where starting to mentor students come in. We love to see how you do with something um, over a longer haul. Anybody can have two or three good meetings and put on a smile and sound good in person or, you know, or over a Zoom call. Um, but it's, it's like the actual work of, of running something is really, really hard. And so when we know founders and we've seen the ups and downs they've gone through, we've seen them jump through some hurdles, that gives us a lot more conviction when we're writing that 250K check into a company. Now, there's sort of certain milestones we need to see before we're gonna be comfortable going into a diligence process. So pre-diligence, it's all relationship building with us. It's getting emails from founders, it's getting on phone calls, it's getting updates, things like this. Um, when a team is ready to explore funding with us, we write a 250K check, typically when someone's raising between 500K and a million, uh, it's often their first funding round and they're funding, they're using that money to fund the pilots they're going into. So typically I'll be working with a founder and they'll say, hey, we're starting to close in on two or three pilot contracts. I'd love to start talking to 1517 about funding is now the right time. 
that's the right time for us to go through a diligence process. So at that point, we usually have a lot of data points on the teams by that point, but if we don't know the team that well, we'll do handfuls of calls with the team, the whole team, we wanna to talk to everybody. Um, we'll do customer diligence calls, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to two customers, that's kind of this empathetic piece where we'll get to learn about what the problem is like for them, what they need. Those are super helpful to us, um, just because it's so clear how dire something is for the customer. Um, then we go through a checklist we have of all these different sort of attributes we're looking for within the business, within the founders and so on. Um, sometimes we'll do cold references, you know, in the background and write to people that we know on LinkedIn or call up people, hey, have you worked with this person and so on. Um, but generally from the first meeting we have with someone where they, they're starting to think, I think I'm ready to raise money. The first phone call is sort of casual and, you know, we'll do a catch up. Uh, I have a profiler that I'll have a company fill out if it's appropriate for us to move a little bit more forward. They'll fill out that profiler. I'll take it to my team and say, hey, do we have time to diligence this? You know, what do we want to do here? 1517 works very collaboratively. No one of us has authority to write a check over another. Um, I like to think of ourselves as a multi-headed hydra and that, you know, multiple heads is better than one. Uh, if we do decide to go forward into diligence, we'll do a team call. Myself and Michael will get on a call with founders. Sometimes Nick and Zach will join us as well. Uh, and then from there, we might do customer diligence calls where we want to find out more and, and go from there. So the process from that first casual phone call to check is a month at most. Uh, we try to keep it really quick. Um, and we also try to give really clear yeses and nos and lots of specific feedback on what we need to see. So for example, with the with the Hamama team that you all saw earlier, they came to me really early when I first was thinking about becoming a customer actually. And they said, hey, we're raising a pre-seed round. I really like them a lot, but we don't do a lot in consumer. Um, it's just not an expertise we have. Um, what I like to always say is that Michael and I are not cool people. So we don't know what other people are gonna think is cool. Um, but a year later, Camille, the CEO and co-founder came to me and she said, um, you know, we're raising our seed round. I'd love to show you my deck so I can get some feedback. And as a past educator, that's like, I love that. I love giving, <laughs> I love giving unsolicited advice to people. It's like one of my favorite things. Um, but uh, she came in and she showed me her deck and her materials and they were stunning. I mean, it was, she had just done such a great job with everything. And I talked to her about what she thought the round might look like and what the economics of the round might look like. And it was a little bit outside of our sweet spot, but not too far. And I went back to Michael and I said, Michael, I think we need to look at this. Like they have really kicked it out of the park. Um, and if we're going to try a early stage consumer D to C play, I think this would be a good one. And so we evaluated it further. Uh, and then we, uh, we wrote a 250K check into the company. Uh, and we've done some follow on since then as well. And so, so that's like, that's, that's some of what the process looks like. And, and so uh, even though you don't necessarily uh, cover the entire round, if somebody raises a million, you put in yeah. 250, you yeah. do still, uh, uh, or, or you can, not necessarily, but you can lead the round. We often lead the round. Um, oftentimes it precedes, like the concept of leading is a little bit um, more malleable. Uh, you know, at a series A, your lead is committing at least 80% of the round. Uh, at the pre-seed, it might be 25%, it might be 50%, somewhere in there is typical. Um, in general, investors love when someone else says, hey, I, I did a bunch of homework. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they really sure. enjoy 
that. Um, and we are and not in, in that. that sense. In that sense, leading is 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 a responsibility. It's oh, it's yeah. a it's a lot of effort. Yep. And and uh, depending on the arrangements, and once again at pre-seed, this is uh, very flexible. Yep. But uh, uh, sitting on a board uh, becomes uh, something that uh, is is a leading indicator of the necessity for the fund to grow, mm -hmm. because very simply, uh, you cannot humanely uh, or humanly. Uh, sit on more than I don't know twelve or or or, or eighteen boards. It, it, you just go crazy, right? So yeah. so that is when funds say, oh, we need to add additional general partners. The general partners will want uh, to participate in the uh, in the uh, and, yeah yeah and yep. and and that is what leads to 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 additional growth uh, uh, as well, uh, whether whether one wants it or not. Yeah, I was going to chime in a little bit. So on the, um, there are a couple things that you brought up. One is that for us at 1517, we do our diligence process, whether or not we lead. We lead, I would say 80 or 90% of the time. But if someone else leads, I don't, I don't even ask actually for uh, their memo. Uh, we always do our own homework. Um, we think that investment- and, and the memo is the investment memorandum, the, the internal right. report Okay. That uh, uh, that documents the decision process uh, uh, that uh, that you do, and as you said, anybody can say no, but everybody say, must say yes. Yep, yep, that's that's how we do it. But for us, like even if we're not leading, we always do our customer diligence. We always do our homework. That's just part of our process. And then for us, at the pre-seed level, like our take is that it's kind of inappropriate to ask for board seats. So what we do, I think the reason people ask for board seats is because they're afraid that they won't be able to get information or they need a structured way to get it. Um, having been a teacher and an educator, I know how to structure things. Um, so we do a mock board meeting with our companies every other month for at least the first year, sometimes the first two years. And then we start sort of tapering it down as the company develops and has a board at series A and beyond. But that's how we get information um, it's very helpful to us because sometimes we'll say to a company, hey, you're doing so great right now. I know you don't have a round open, but how would another 100K help you out? And the founders will be like, oh, wow, this is really great. And so we'll preemptively come in, help them out so they can get more hires and do things. Uh, and I've talked to so many investors, um, angels and pre-seed folks who say, oh, I'm not getting an update from these founders and I'm not getting this. And it is on the founders to be structured and do that. But I always tell people like, we have something on the calendar that's preset. The the moment we make the investment, we have an onboard welcome meeting. They get the calendar invite that is uh, essentially into the rest of their life until we stop uh, until we stop working with them. Uh, and we have it all set up so that we get that information. But but my purview about board seats is that it's really not appropriate until the Series A because when someone's investing, you know, eighty percent of capital into a round. I think that makes sense for them to have a board seat. Um, but before that, when it's kind of piecemeal, I just think it's too risky to give up control of your company to people that honestly, you don't have that deep of a relationship with yet. And the uh, way you structure the investment at the seed or pre-seed is yeah. universally through either a convertible uh, loan or uh, through a safe, uh, which is an even lighter yeah. touch uh, uh, legal contract uh, uh, and 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 once again for those who are uh, watching this 
uh, that means that uh, you don't receive equity in the company right away. Um, what uh, what you receive is an agreement, yep. so that uh, the money you 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 are handing over is uh, going to be uh, converting into equity in a future point in time. Yep. Uh, and and even though technically uh, the loan could be repaid, you would feel almost offended if the loan oh, was yeah. repaid because yeah. you would feel that you are being excluded some from oh, something. You'd, you'd be edged out. Oh, that'd be that's oh. right. That's right. Yeah. Hard and, thinking about it. I'm like, oh, that'd be terrible. And it is amazing, especially outside of uh, of hotspots like uh, the Valley and New York, how many budding entrepreneurs are stuck at very basic questions like, okay, the entrepreneur is going to give me, sorry, the investor is going to give me money, but do I have to give it back? And what if uh, I, I don't make it? Uh, I'm stuck with, because they are, they are the maybe the only financial the serious financial transaction they did at the time was to take out a student loan right, right. Oh, absolutely. And, and and that is so bad that that yeah. you have to you cannot even bankrupt it away on a personal level right yeah. um so so um these um these convertible uh loans or safes yeah. uh, are 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 your instrument and then when the first uh, prized round comes, yep. uh, typically the Series A, that is when you can calculate how much, what percentage of the company you you end up with. That's okay. And, and another advantage of, of the convertible is that it doesn't force the two parties, the entrepreneur and the investor, to pretend that they can value the company oh, at the early stage when it can only be bad for one or both, right, but that right. it is right, it, it is literally impossible. Yep, yep, yep. No, that's exactly right. And, and these um, these structures really help to set things up in the early days because you don't know exactly where something should be set, uh, but you do want to be able to capture equity in the company during that price round later. Um, we've written a bunch about all these different topics and we also have podcasts that we've put out. And so it's, it is very confusing and I'd urge all entrepreneurs to educate themselves as much as they can on these vehicles. And also even things like how much is appropriate to sell off of your company. You know, I, uh, I had a young person come to my table once at a hackathon and said, well, you know, how much, how much equity are you looking for in a company? And he sort of had this like defensive swagger. And I said, oh, you know, we write a 250K check and we're looking for, I don't know, five to 7% of a company and his jaw dropped open. And I, and I looked at him and I said, is that a good jaw drop or a bad jaw drop? And he says, I can't believe it. I talked to an angel investor here and they wanted 50% of my company for 50K. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is unfortunate that uh, that the ecosystem includes uh, uh, predators oh, who yeah. who, uh, who basically screw uh, entrepreneurs <laughs> over. Uh, I I always tell people they should uh, aim to um, be able to structure the growth of their company so that over the course of three four rounds, including the seed or pre seed, they still keep control in terms of having the majority of the shares and the majority of the board. And anytime they meet somebody who aims to wrestle that away from them, it's paradoxical. 
and it should be really questioned very very um aggressively questioned yeah. because it is a confirmation of yeah. lack of uh, belief in yeah. the entrepreneur okay. but yeah. you are you 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 danielle and and i and, and and so many of us we don't invest on on somebody who who builds you know i mean not the bills we don't invest in keyboards we invest right. in people who can yeah. who know how to build or dream yeah. keyboards or yeah. whatever else right yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and investing in those people means that you have to believe in them. Yeah. And if you say, oh, yeah, I believe in you as long as I make all the decisions, what are you talking yeah. about? Well, we all, well, we all, and I've been saying this to founders lately. I said, you know, um, we believe that if we think we need to drive your car, then we should never have made the investment. Like the founders are in the front seats. They're the ones driving the vehicle. And if we think we have to grab the wheel from them, we should have never made the investment. I, I was telling a founder earlier this morning, I said, we're kind of the goofballs in the back handing up the Cheetos. Like we're here to help you out. We're here to connect you with other founders. Um, you know, we're here to have those hard conversations about things. But if I think I need to operate what you're doing, uh, that's just not the model that we work under. I mean, there are people who work under that model and seem to be successful with it. But for us, we just don't think uh, we don't think that's the right way to invest. And then there are other things that happen too with investors where it's not even out of malice, but it's out of just not seeing enough deals and not knowing. So sometimes what we'll see is that an angel will come in and they'll actually take uh, too small a percent of, of a company. They'll set something like a 10 million cap on a company that's really new. And the founder will come to us and say, oh, we have terms on the round, it's 10 million. And I'm like, oh, it's not 10 million. Like, because it's, it's what, you know, the way to think about this is what they might be saying is just outside of what's normal for market rates. And so one of the things that we always need to do with our founders is I tell them, you're the expert on your company and your technology and what you're doing. And my job is to have expertise in what's happening in the market of startups. So that if you say something, I can tell you, hey, you are way outside the ballpark of what's normal right now. Like, you know, for a pre-seed round right now, we're seeing anything between like maybe a two and five million cap on something. So when someone says, oh, we're going to do a 10, but they're at the same stage as those uh, other pre-seed founders, we, all, we always have to tell them like, no, sorry, that's not how this works. Like we got back. And, and let me tell you, compared to the rest of the world, yeah, you see crazy stuff in the valley all the time, including yeah. in valuations. Whether yeah. it is ending up as Juicero or, yep. or uh, I, I, I love, uh, you know, um, the arrogance of uh, uh, VCs who pretend they know except it is all survivorship bias. Oh, right. Oh, it's, and, yeah. and then look at the list of investors in something yeah. like Juicero. Yeah. And, and not gloating about it or not even telling them, but just deep inside knowing that, that it is, it is so, so not true so many, so many times. And, and then of course they make it up on the volume. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. is, that is also true. Yeah. But uh, but uh, but a lot of it uh, really is uh, is uh, a lot of sweat, but still yeah. based on factors that are very very hard to to. Oh to yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, there's there's a lot going on. So so uh, uh, Daniel, your um, 
path uh, is is really wonderful and and inspiring and um also uh it really transpires that you are having a lot of fun in doing okay. what you're doing you love working with founders and and definitely uh with with your firm uh anybody receiving an investment is receiving much more than money that yeah. is one of the mantras of the vc oh we are adding value and so many times that is not true right. but uh but uh definitely with with you uh, it is um so uh, in case uh, uh, somebody watching this video uh, uh believes that uh, they have uh, an idea yep. uh, a project a product a service that uh, could be a good fit sure. um what uh, what should they do yeah, I would say, and I'll broaden it even more. I'll say, you know, if, if the person is a, is a young maker, student, they could be a high school student, even college student, they could be someone who's already dropped out. Um, one, they can go to our uh, form on our website. We answer, I would say, 90% of these and have at least a phone call with everyone who comes through. We, we believe in the magic of serendipity and that, you know, just because you don't have access to people in our network doesn't mean you shouldn't be part of it. So you can contact us there. You could email me personally at danielle at 1517fund.com as well. Um, I've made some really wonderful connections lately through Twitter as well. Um, so I've really enjoyed uh, being on there. I've been posting. I use Twitter as my vent machine. Uh, so I just vent about random things on there. Uh, people seem to enjoy it. But yeah, please reach out. Um, accessibility is one of the things that we really value. Uh, it, it's one of our sort of mottos in the fund is to be accessible to people. So please reach out. And um, even if you think, oh, I shouldn't, my thing isn't ready yet, just just send a note over the transom. It's okay. And uh, uh, and it is uh, really refreshing to 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 hear that and to feel uh, that because the common perception of uh, the world of investment is that it is detached, it right. is um, uh, arrogant, it yeah. is uh, um, self, um, uh, you know, yeah, distancing or or um, it lives in a bubble, mm -hmm. um, but. Uh, um, the, the the contrary is is so true. Uh, luckily, uh, with you and and with others as well, yep. uh, because making ourselves accessible and available uh, has been a great uh, benefit, uh, both to oh, uh, the, the entrepreneurs, but also also to us. Uh, yeah, it, it has been uh, it has been great. And I, I think early stage investors understand that it's about that personal relationship. So I love the people at Village Global and Hustle Fund and 2048 and Precursor and Unshackled and all these different groups. Like I think when you're working at the earliest stages, it really is about the people. So all the investors I've met who work at that stage, they're my my like tribal investors. I'm like, oh, those are my people. I would want to hang out with you. Um, but yeah, there are a lot of big personalities in this world, and there's there's plenty of it that I'm I'm fine to leave by the sidelines. So Danielle, uh, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Congratulations uh, in 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 your path and 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 your endeavors, uh, and uh, uh, good luck uh, with uh, California. Hopefully, being able to uh, uh, open up um, with uh, moderation and with very. Yeah. Uh, rational and scientific uh, approaches uh, rather than driven, driven by pure uh, wonderful emotions but yeah. which in, in this case uh, would be counter counterproductive for for sure yeah. 
So, so uh, resist and thrive. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. What a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. So uh, thank you everybody for uh, following, uh, searching for the question live. Uh, if uh, uh, you would like to suggest uh, people that you would like uh, to see on the show, you can go to uh, davidorban.com slash sftql slash guest vote. Uh, and since uh, now we also have the sftq.live uh, website, I realized that I have to set up the corresponding page over there as well, so that you can suggest and vote on uh, people that others uh, uh, suggested. Join our Discord channel. Um, if you speak Italian, I also have an Italian uh, YouTube channel, and you are welcome to subscribe uh, there as well. And uh, of course, um, support us on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. And uh, see you uh, next time with uh, searching for the question live.